Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, and today, coming back to the podcast, we have Shihoko Goto, who is the Deputy Director of Geoeconomics at the Asia Program here at the Wilson Center, and to talk to us about the situation in the global economy. We've done several episodes now on the global economy, on on regional aspects of the global economy. We've done Europe, we've done Latin America, and Shihoko's going to help us out with Asia and maybe some of the more macro issues as well. So welcome back, Shioka. Thanks very much for having me again, Aaron. Well, you are in the Asia program and you, uh, so obviously focus a lot on Asia, um, but you have a background in economics and you were a reporter for the Financial Times. So you've really been watching a lot of these issues and What's your sense of where Asia is and uh, coming out of this, or are they coming out of this COVID-19 situation? Right. Well, the coming out, um, when and how is the big question that we're facing, right? So we've evolved from this being first and foremost a health care crisis, um, a health crisis, um, and it still remains a global pandemic. Uh, but there's a lot of concern about where the global economy is going and how each region will be recovering and at what pace. What we do know is that um, things may not necessarily be as dire as they could be on the macro level, um, largely in part due to coordinated efforts by central banks and finance ministries around the world, most notably in the industrialized countries of G7 as well as the G20. Um, but the pace of recovery and the, the depth of recovery um, will really depend on a number of things. Of course, the biggest issue is going to be the you know, how they control the pandemic, um, but also how they spend the money that they have to ensure um, uh, targeted recovery for um, sensitive areas and sensitive demographics. And that really depends on which country and to some extent which region um, you're from. And this is a pandemic that started in China and then spread across East Asia. And it was initially seen as this big um, East Asia um, epidemic. And it was, we were keeping very careful tabs on what was happening to the Chinese economy and what the spillover effect of the weakening of the Chinese economy would have on all the neighboring countries. We've gone far beyond that. Uh, but the interesting thing is, even though it started in East Asia, East Asia is actually coming back out of it uh, more quickly than other countries, than other regions. So we're seeing, for instance, South, South Korea really trying to get back to life um, as normal as possible. Taiwan coming out, um, you know, China really coming out of its complete lockdown as well. Um, and we're seeing that kind of movement, movement as well in Europe. And we're gradually seeing um, a loosening of restrictions here in the United States too. So when you look at these economies in East Asia, what are you seeing 
are the spots to kind of look at. So if you look, for instance, at the example of South Korea, we had this rapid rate of infection, but at the same time, South Korea has been seen as a model in keeping you know, aggressive testing, aggressive policies of containment and um, transparency of information. Um, the other thing that they didn't do, um, the, they did do was actually not completely um, have a lockdown. So the um, decline of economic activity was not as stark as it has been in countries that have taken a more uh, you know, all or nothing absolute closure um, approach. And so that has meant that the um, decline has not been as severe. And the argument now is that they will be able to go back um, um, a lot easier than some of the countries that have really shut themselves off for the last few weeks. What did their economic stimulus look like compared to ours or compared to other countries in the region? Walk us through what they're doing. So it's estimated that worldwide there's been about $10 trillion being committed by governments to ensure um, you know, through various stimulus packages to ensure that you know, there is um, protection of the most vulnerable of industries and there is uh, guarantees to keep consumer spending from like not totally collapsing um, and the like. And with, in the case of South Korea, we've seen the stimulus of about $200 billion, um, which has been really important in, in ensuring that South Korea's economy um, remains relatively strong. South Korea has one of the biggest um, export-dependent economies in the world. And when we see this global downturn in demand, it's going to be very difficult for South Korea to export its way out. So a lot of the stimulus, um, about $32 billion, has been earmarked um, to support the um, automobile sector as well as um, the shipping industry, um, airlines, of course, um, telecommunications too. Um, some of the money has been is will be spent on providing emergency relief for small and medium enterprises, and some of the money will actually be spent on to ensure that workers remain on payroll as well. And what about uh, say Japan or some of the other countries? Uh, what are they What have they been trying to do as far as their economic measures? Yeah, so Japan is really interesting. So it's the third largest economy in the world. Uh, it's also one of the uh, the, the most um, aging societies in the world. So you would think, and it's also got big urban areas, right? Tokyo is a megapolis and Osaka is a megapolis. Um, so you would think that you know, high density, lots of um, elderly people. These are recipes for um, the country to be particularly vulnerable um, to the COVID outbreak. Um, and of course, Japan was one of the first countries to be infected by, by the virus, um, most notably um, when the cruise line actually docked earlier this year and there was a lot of infection within um, the, um, the, the, um, the, the cruise ship that was docked outside of Tokyo. Um, 
what Japan is doing is it is giving the single biggest、um, stimulus package amongst all countries in the world in terms of GDP.、Um, it's about Um, 1.1 trillion dollars, which is approximately 20% of Japan's GDP.、Um, it's very,、um, it's a big sum.、Um, it's very,、uh, it, it's got a number of prongs. One is, of course, to keep、um, consumer spending high and to ensure that people are able to pay off their, continue to pay off their、um, debt obligations. One of the things that they're doing is to give. A thousand dollars to all residents, regardless of, of need,、um, and then they're also ensuring to give subsidies to companies so that people remain on the payroll of these、uh, individual companies. And、um, there are also, you know, efforts to encourage tourism、um, when things actually start getting back.、Um, To a more of a normal economic situation, because of course, like in any other country,、um, travel has really、um, been restricted, and it's really um, hurt um,、uh, industries,、uh, transport, airlines, hotels, restaurants that depend on people going out and enjoying life. So, so that's、um, the situation that Japan finds itself. I do need to point out too. Um, that one of the biggest、um, downers for Japan、um, as a result of the Corona outbreak is that its、um, Olympic bid、um, to host、uh, the Olympics this summer has been postponed.、Um, it should be held next summer,、um, but again, we don't know what the world situation is going to be like, and we don't know. Olympics will actually move forward or not, and this is a huge blow for the Japanese economy as well. So they're really grappling with a lot of issues at the moment. So with such a huge amount, twenty percent of GDP for stimulus is—I mean—that's really phenomenal. I think as far as just in terms of numbers, it's just a, a phenomenal. Yeah,、number. I mean, it's it's going to be very difficult to kind of sustain that kind of debt level. Um, but I do want to point out that one of the interesting things that a lot of these countries and governments are doing in the region are, you know, not just providing immediate relief through aggressive monetary and fiscal、um, support measures, but they're also using this as an opportunity to move forward with some of the bigger、um, changes that they see coming down the pipeline. So one of the biggest influences of COVID、um, on the economy is to really rethink how.、Um, Trade relations、um, and the priorities of, of trade、um, flow as well, and we've heard a lot about、um, supply chain disruption, right? And we will probably see、uh, companies really reconsidering how they invest overseas in in coming、uh, months, if not、um, years.、Um, and we know that. There's a lot of need on the part of central governments to say that products should be made, at, if not、um, at home, at least close to home. So we hear not about offshoring, but actually reshoring. And reshoring means to have those critical supplies closer to home,、um, also to have high, higher inventories. We've usually said that having high inventories、um, and having 
you know, things made closer to home, which might cost a little bit more. Um, these are not good um, for competitiveness, but we're really rethinking what it means to be competitive. And I mentioned this in the context of Japan, because one of the interesting things that has come as part of the stimulus package is for the Japanese government to um, use this opportunity to bring back Japanese companies based in China back to Japan. And so the stimulus, 2.2 um, billion of the stimulus will be used um, specifically for Japanese companies that need help in bringing their facilities back uh, to Japan from China. Now, 2.2 billion for this endeavor is not a lot of money uh, because it, it won't, it's not enough to help like big companies, like big manufacturers, like autom automobile manufacturers to bring back their facilities um, to Japan. But it does give this kind of incentive for companies to really rethink, you know, do we really want to be so dependent on China? Do we really want to have our production line um, be vulnerable, um, not just to um, natural disasters and unforeseen circumstances, but also to some of the um, political uh, decisions that might hamper access to assets um, by the Chinese government in the future. So it, it's really led to this rethink of um, spending priorities and investment strategies. So I think when you talk about trade, we would probably be remiss if we didn't also think about the China situation with the United States. Uh, we heard this week President Trump wants to open up the, the evaluation and spend a few weeks looking at whether or not China has met its phase one goals, which we know they have not. Um, and there never really was. And people can go back to our podcast that we did back in January on the trade issue. There was never really a firm commitment from China that they were ever going to actually buy as much as they were saying they were going to buy. It was all due to market forces and what they could take. Obviously market forces are, m are causing them to buy much lower than probably they were even spending back in December prior to the agreement. Right. So can China follow up on its commitment to buy American agriculture uh, and uh, machinery products as had been committed um, under the phase one deal. Um, when it was concluded several months ago, the cynics would have said that it would be difficult because the number was so high and there just simply wasn't as much need in China. What With the decline worldwide and the decline within the Chinese market, that kind of demand has certainly fallen and the ability for China to actually absorb that kind of um, export demand from the United States has gone down. Um, here is, this is speculation, of course, but um, so long as China is able to make gestures that it is trying to meet those needs, even if it doesn't meet the numerical targets or the numbers that have been outlined by the administration, they may actually be enough to buy um, you know, be for, for Beijing to actually be in the good graces of the White House. But here's the thing. 
um, COVID has added yet another element of confrontation and conflict in relations between China and the United States. And so we have this big back and forth about you know, where did the um, virus originate from? China is, if it's China, and China says no. And there's a lot of talk about, in some quarters, about reparations, or if not that extreme, there's a lot of talk about China really having to take greater responsibility and um, being more transparent about um, its current data and the origins of the virus as well, which has really um, struck a nerve with the Chinese authorities. So it's within that context that we have th this ongoing trade negotiation. So on the one hand, we have uh, a, a global economy that is seeing far less demand that we, than we have had in the past um, with the outlook not looking so great, at least in the near term. But if China were to make um, overtures to say that they're doing their best faith to buy more American products, that might be you know, enough. That may allow it to actually buy some time. But if this political conflict and tension continues, um, this conversation, this negotiation may actually uh, not work um, the way we would like it to. Yeah, it definitely seems like there is a momentum building to kind of use China as the punching bag on this. But China does, it does appear that they were covering things up at the beginning. And I do think that that is a, that seems to be the mark that they can't, they can't sweep that under the rug. And it's not just yeah. the United States administration that is pushing them on this. There are a lot of countries and especially then China goes and when they start coming out on the other side of the curve they come out as you know yay China and I think a lot of countries were like what are you what are you guys doing when now we're dealing with it you know yeah no, I mean, one of the most heartening things about this COVID outbreak is the collaboration and cooperation amongst the scientific community and we've seen a lot of researchers both in the public and private sectors working together and there's a lot of cooperation in terms of um, trying to develop um, you know, a vaccine as well as a cure for this disease. Um, but at the same time, on the trade front, there's also a lot of competition. So um, tariff, tariff barriers were seen as this big threat to, to global growth and trade flows um, only until a few months ago. But now one of the bigger risks to the trade regime is export restrictions. The most obvious is going to be um, Know, export restriction of critical medical supplies and equipment, but we're also seeing this um, export restriction on, on food as well, which really does, um, and it's understandable, but oftentimes illogical, especially when it comes to food and, and with countries that have an adequate supply uh, of food. And the other thing that we're seeing is a lot of kind of, you know, medical diplomacy, people call it mask, facial mask diplomacy, and countries, especially countries like, like China, trying to kind of, you know, um, be in the good graces of other countries by providing 
uh, masks for free or to sell much needed medical supplies overseas. But that's actually backfired in a lot of places. And we hear a lot of stories about um, European uh, governments and hospitals buying Chinese equipment that were actually defective. So that has kind of blown up in China's um, face, saying, saying that you know, China's unreliable, look at the stuff that they've sold us, this is totally unacceptable. That, so that kind of builds up the, you know, the frustration towards the Chinese government as well. So looking out on the horizon, as my usual wrap-up question is, and you've been with me before here, so you you know what I'm what I'm going for. What do you see that you know a policymaker or congressional staffer who could be listening? What what is out on the horizon? I know this is probably the hard question too, because we don't even know when this ends. We don't really see kind of how this resolves. But what's out there that you see? Well, I I see really two big things um, with the underlying umbrella that government policies really do matter at a time of a pandemic. Um, And the first thing that I would note is that we really can learn from history. Um, And of course, we've seen all these visuals um, of the 1918 flu, um, and those um, temporary um, beds um, being set up all over the place with, with um, uh, nurses and doctors and volunteers all helping these people in makeshift beds. We thought that would never happen again, but of course it's happening. So we try to learn from you know, some of the lessons learned from that, both what to do as well as what not to do. And now from an economic front, we're trying to learn about you know, not, um, not the financial crisis of a decade ago, because what we could potentially face is far bigger than that. We're now trying to look to the you know, 19, 1929 onwards, um, the Great Depression, and what kind of uh, things were of concern then, what happened then, Um, what worked, what didn't work. So we were trying to learn from that. But one of the more interesting things um, is to know that policy decisions that are made um, can actually impact um, society and how voters vote as well. And I have um, talked about the example of of Germany um, after 1918. And when you look at municipalities and governments, local governments that had invested strongly in um, education um, and healthcare at that time had a lower mortality rate. So there was a direct correlation between how much local governments spent on public welfare and uh, the mortality rate. Um, And at the same time, those which had the higher mortality rates tended to vote more towards political extremism. And in this case, the study done by the New York Fed found that the places with the highest mortality rate had a bigger support for the Nazi party um, down the line. So that's really interesting as we um, look at society and how we look at the different paces of recovery between countries, but also within countries as well. 
how that will have, especially in a big country like the United States and this big um, diverse federal system that we have. Um, and um, we talk a lot about the power of local governments and we do know that how local governments uh, spend money and where they prioritize um, uh, their, their efforts will have a big impact on, on social recovery um, you know, down the line. The second issue, um, which is really Asia specific, is looking at how Asia is recovering. And we think that, we hope, that the, what Asian governments are doing can be a model for a lot of other countries to follow as well. Um, they've been particularly successful in testing and tracing and containing the virus. Um, a lot of them are now opening up without really having a uh, surge in uh, contagion again. Um, that is something that we should look to. Um, one of the reasons why this has been seen as a successful way is because they do have um, uh, um, a more successful um, healthcare system, an educational system that is more equitable across the board. And so there, there comes this talk about, you know, the new way for Asian growth. We talked about the Asian tigers during you know, the immediate post-war years. But now for the 21st century, perhaps we should learn more from the Asian experience and policies that encourage um, a, a bigger social safety net and investing um, in grassroots um, uh, from the ground up um, economic growth. Hmm. I find it interesting, your, your first point, especially because the, we already saw sort of this global move towards populism anyway, and it, it, it's been building over the last several years. And so the electoral consequences of COVID-19 and how governments respond is going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next several years. Yeah, um, I, I think so. I mean, this is an election year in the United States. Um, we're very conscious of voter sentiment in this country at the moment. But the, as a responsible citizen, the bigger issue should be, and as a government at large, should be really not just about that November deadline, but really to see um, how that will impact growth um, and recovery at the local level in, in the future, um, it it's should be painfully obvious that a lot of, you know, there is a lot of uh, xenophobia, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of concern about the outsider. I should also point out that um, there was a surge in xenophobia in Germany immediately after 1918 because it was called the Spanish flu. And the understanding amongst the Europeans was that this came from Spain because it's called the Spanish flu. Therefore, we should be wary of outsiders. And so that really feeds into that uh, sentiment of fearing, you know, fearing foreigners, um, encouraging xenophobia um, systemically. 
Understood. Well, Shihoko, really appreciate you coming back and helping us walk through some of these issues. We'll certainly have you back again, and we appreciate you. Great. Thank you so much, Aaron. That'll do it for this episode. I hope everyone stays safe, stays healthy, keeps listening to the podcast to learn more of what you need to know. And we will be back next time. Thanks for joining us.